Hi, I'm Brent Stafford and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. Big tobacco is evil. This truth serves as the foundation for tobacco control policymaking across most of the world. Public health bureaucrats, politicians, and nonprofit health advocacy groups believe so strongly in the evil of big tobacco that they ostracize any person or group they deem to be advancing the interests of the tobacco industry. Perhaps big tobacco is evil. Combustible tobacco products are deadly, and for decades the industry lied to the public, marketed to children, and spent untold millions influencing public policy. Yet by branding big tobacco as evil, public health organizations like the WHO have egregiously marked vastly less harmful alternatives to smoking, such as vaping and snus, as complicit. Joining us today on RegWatch is Clyde Bates, tobacco control policy expert and former director of Action on Smoking and Health UK. Bates believes tobacco control crusaders have baked into policy a principle of irreconcilable conflict between the interests of the tobacco industry and public health. Clive, thanks again for coming back on RegWatch. Hi, Brent. It's great to be back. Always good to talk to you. So you just published an article in Tobacco Reporter that really, quite frankly, is the single best analysis of public health's implacable position towards vaping and other tobacco harm reduction products that I've seen in the five years we've been covering this. You write in this article about the iron rule of tobacco control. What does that mean? Well, basically, I was trying to find, trying to establish, is there a governing idea, one principle that, that explains the way tobacco control function? I don't mean all of tobacco control. I mean a kind of mainstream uh, body of opinion and approach. And um, basically, you know, you could say, well, it, maybe it's reducing harm or reducing cancer, um, or maybe it's, um, you know, trying to get rid of smoking, or whatever. But actually, I lighted on something else, which is this idea um, that comes, it has its origins in Article 5.3 of the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. Um, but it's the idea that there is a fundamental and irreconcilable conflict uh, between the interests of the tobacco industry and the interests of public health. Now, if, if you take that idea as the governing idea, it has a lot of explanatory power. Uh, it explains a lot of things that we see. Bizarre things like, um, you know, rejecting the, the experience of snus or the demonization of, of vaping, heated and smokeless tobacco products. You know, because if they come from the tobacco industry, it means by definition, they have to be bad. They have to be irreconcilably conflicted with public health. So if you take that as your starting point, that that industry can never do any good, will always be bad, its conflict is fundamental and irreconcilable, you start to see a lot of things take shape that explains what is going on. Let's just take a quick look at the article, if you can maybe address that here. We've got it up on the screen. So it's 5.3 in setting and implementing their public health policies with respect to tobacco control, parties shall act to protect these policies from commercial and other vested interests of the tobacco industry in accordance with national law. Right. So, so that is that is the piece of text that is in the Framework Convention on Tobacco Controls, the famous Article 5.3. And I, I was around at the time that this was all agreed back in 2003. And it wasn't seen as anything particularly, you know, spectacular. It's almost a statement of the obvious that governments should take care 
not to be overwhelmed by uh, commercial interests. And that would apply to the oil industry in climate change and, um, you know, pharmaceutical industry in, uh, you know, kind of healthcare. It's not a particularly remarkable thing. Uh, and don't think anybody thought it was at the time. It was just a good process point that you shouldn't allow yourselves to be captured. But what happened in 2008 is that that principle was greatly extended uh, in the form of guidelines to what Article 5.3 actually meant. And the principle in the guidelines is that there is a fundamental and irreconcilable conflict between the interests of um, the tobacco industry and the interests of public health policy. Now, that is a very different thing to Article 5.3. It's actually a finding of fact. It's saying that this is a permanent and irreconcilable war between public health and the tobacco industry. It means that there is no possibility of any situation in which the interests of the tobacco industry and public health are aligned, um, which I think they are in the case of tobacco harm reduction. The companies can um, produce much lower risk products than people who smoke can switch to them and that will have a public health benefit. That, that principle was wrong at the time it was signed. We, we already knew, for example, that public health benefited from snus in Sweden, where now the rate of smoking is 7%, 5% daily. It's the lowest in the world and the reason is because of snus. And because of that, there is a lower level of heart disease, cancer and respiratory illness in um, Sweden than there is in comparable countries. So that, that principle got off to a very shaky evidential start, but it's become, I think, totemic. Now, just one thing to say about this. I don't think it's the governing principle of tobacco control because it is written into the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. I think it's written into the Framework Convention because it's the governing principle of tobacco control. It's what the people interpreting that article wanted it to say. Uh, and it's how they were able to express their perspective on the tobacco industry in convention language in the form of these guidelines. So it was a pre, uh, it was a pre-existing prejudice. I think so. Uh, I mean, it's very difficult to prove this, but I think when you when you look at when you look at who was involved in this and who is still involved, I mean, they, they, these are veterans of the tobacco wars. So they're people, you know, a bit like me, who spent their you know a good chunk of their career fighting the tobacco industry, you know, beating them uh, into submission over the links between smoking and cancer and all the lies they were telling and all the all the kind of terrible conflicts and influencing strategies that they had. And, you know, they just never wanted to really give up fighting that war. Uh, and, you know, to some extent, that's right. I mean, you, could, you have to be vigilant. I'm not in any way saying that these companies are angels, far from it. But to have a principle that is total, fundamental, irreconcilable conflict, whatever they do now and ever, I think is just 
setting yourself up for trouble because you have no way of you know of understanding what innovation might come i mean when when this was agreed in 2008 vaping was very much in its infancy heated tobacco products were just sort of ridiculous sideshows they were all about the size of a you know 1980s mobile phone they were you know huge things um that they you cannot anticipate how things will develop or the idea that it might be the tobacco industry and the vaping industry. And remember, for some tobacco control people, there's no difference. Vaping products are tobacco products. The vaping industry is the tobacco industry. WHO has tried to smear that definition itself. But what, but what you foreclose is the idea that through innovation, the tobacco industry and the vaping industry may be the way you get out of the problem of smoking. And the problem, the disease problem, the health problem is overwhelmingly caused by smoking. There's also a large element that's caused by really poorly made smokeless tobacco products in Southern Asia. And again, there's a harm reduction agenda for those. You could make them in a much better way, can make them with much higher purity standards, much better curing, much better processes. And you could save thousands of lives and avoid millions of cancers. So I think it's a ridiculous thing, but it does explain a lot of what we see from tobacco control. So Clive, when looking at 2008 guidelines here, um, you know, what are the mechanisms that are the most egregious? Now, we know, and we just had... Um, a Canadian activist on who was talking about being ostracized by the Canadian Public Health Association at an event uh, just two months ago in September, where a whole whack of harm reduction activists that are involved in the vaping industry got disinvited, well, not disinvited, but they got their registration yanked and they weren't able to yeah. attend this conference. So, you know, they are being ostracized from the public discussion. Is that the same thing that's happening across the world as a result of this article? I, I think there's an element of that. I mean, the what what this this principle, if you apply it um, rigorously, and you say, right, that really is our governing idea. A lot of bad things flow from it. So, um, for example, if you support tobacco harm reduction and the value of reduced risk products from a public health point of view, then somebody who rejects that idea has to see you as somebody who is fundamentally misguided or a shill or in the pay of the industry or in, in some way influenced by um, something outside of their governing principle. Now, that, I think, has led to a polarization of debate. And, you know, I would, I would happily debate anyone, anytime, in any forum. I'm, I'm all up for that. But what you see increasingly is sort of weird purity standards being applied that say, you know, you can't come to this meeting if the following, you know, eight conditions apply. You know, if, if, you've, ever, if you've ever advocated for, for these products or you favor uh, low levels of regulation of these products or, you, you know, you're not pressing for the strongest possible regulation is one of them I saw recently. Well, what if you think pressing for the strongest possible re regulation would you know, make these products difficult to access, more expensive, less appealing, and therefore would lead more people to smoke and fewer people to switch. I mean, which is what I think. So, so you start to see 
this way of that group who are bound really together by this um, governing idea uh, of hostility to the tobacco companies, um, sort of having an in-group, out-group dynamic and finding ever more elaborate ways to stop themselves being exposed to seditious ideas or as they would as they would see it, ideas that can only be influenced by the tobacco industry. And I see this all the time on Twitter. But if you look at some of the conference policies that there are now, they are, you know, they're a bizarre in the extent to which they, you know, apply purity tests and, you know, try to exclude uh, dissonant voices from their from their meetings. And I think that's only, that's only one of the harmful effects. I mean, but that's pretty harmful. And we're talking about professionals with inside the public health industry who may be amenable to vaping as a tool for harm reduction and they're being disinvited and shunned and so forth. Is that not correct? Well, to some extent, I, I, I just think the, 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 those environments are being made more and more hostile, more and more difficult to attend. You'll have, uh, you know, things like you, you're ex, you, you would be excluded for the following reasons, but not these, um, this list is not exclusive. So if you want to go to a conference, you have to, you have to turn up there, um, you know, um, hope, hope that somebody's going to let you in. Uh, otherwise, you've wasted your, your travel and your hotel costs. And you can just, you know, sit in your room and watch the TV. So it, it's, you know, it's, it, it's not black and white, but it's certainly not as it, as it should be, in my view. They should, be, they should recognize that, you know, hundreds of scientists actually accept this idea worldwide it's a very you know it's a very credible basis harm reduction is a, a credible basis across the domains of public health there's good evidence may be contested but there's good evidence um, and we should have a proper talk about it uh, we should have a proper debate about it and we should try to understand each other better but creating echo chambers and bubbles doesn't do that and you know this sort of terror that, that you will allow a tobacco industry influence, no matter how tenuous into the room, I think is is counterproductive. Have you ever been denied um, attendance at any event or so forth because of... No. Well, not not strictly speaking. There are, there are events that I've not gone to because it's unclear before you go whether they'll actually let you in or not, depending on how they interpret their own rules. So I'm kind of you know, um, like I'm not going to fly to Berlin, turn up, um, you know, book a hotel for three days, turn up on the off chance that they'll let me into a conference. So it has a it has a chilling effect rather than an excluding effect. Um, so, I mean, that's probably their intention. But, uh, you know, they don't write their guidelines in a way that are unambiguous. Um, and, you know, you, you know, you you don't know what they're going to... I mean, I think I'd be fine, but I just don't want to waste my time and money attending something and then have to have a row at the entrance about whether I've met their purity tests or not. We're talking about the World Health Organization and their framework convention for tobacco control is really obviously the governing principle here. They're the home of the principle, correct? 
Yeah, I mean, institutionally and legally, that's that's true. That's where that that's where that is based. Um, but of course, you know, member states have signed up to the principle. Those who are parties to the convention, and many of them act on on the guidelines. But as I say, I think this is a broader phenomenon. It's in the guidelines because it's a a governing idea in tobacco control. It's a governing idea in tobacco control because it's in the guidelines. And so this is really, you know, in response to the decades in which that big tobacco did play kind of a detrimental role when it comes to truth uh, on the issue. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, its origins are in the tobacco wars. And, you know, um, there are many, many, you know, many people fought fine and determined battles over many decades with the the industry over there sort of lying and cheating and influence operations around um, you know, around smoking, and I'm one of them. I, I, I make no apologies for that. Um, I did my best when I was director of ASH to try and rein them in and make their lives as difficult as possible. However, you you have to be open. If you're focused on public health, you have to be open to the idea that the world changes, that there are innovations, that there are different ways of doing things, and not just reject them because you're always have been in a war with big tobacco or anyone selling commercial nicotine. Um, you know, you have to see you have to see the opportunities, even if it puts you in an uncomfortable place. And I, you know, I freely admit it's uncomfortable. Um, you know, you take a lot of, you know, sneering and jeering. Um, but nevertheless, uh, if you put public health first, you have to be open to these ideas, and not exclude them because of some defunct principle that never had any evidential basis in the first place and arises because of the, you know, the, the priorities of the old school tobacco warriors as they try to come to terms with the 20th century. Clive, if you could take a moment, could you walk us through the difference between Article 5.3 and the guidelines that were implemented in 2008. So in, in 2003, the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control was a, agreed, and it contains an article, 5.3, which essentially says that um, governments uh, should uh, protect their policymaking uh, process from the vested interests uh, of uh, the tobacco industry. Okay, Fair enough. It's a reasonable principle you know you shouldn't you shouldn't have your public health policy written by big tobacco you shouldn't have your climate policy written by um big oil and you shouldn't have um your healthcare policy written by the pharmaceutical industry fair enough everybody should protect their policy making process from vested interests and i would go further and say vested interests of you know, well-funded philanthropists and uh, prohibitionists and anyone with absolutist positions. You need to keep them a little bit at arm's length, listen to them, but don't allow yourself to be captured by them. So fair enough. That's in the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. It's fairly innocuous. There was a lot of controversy about it when it was agreed in 2003. Step forward to 2008, and uh, there is a process... Uh, which I was not part of, I'd left, uh, left that field by then, um, to establish guidelines for the implementation of Article 5.3. Uh, 
And uh, those guidelines are much longer and they set out a variety of things that you should do, uh, some of which are sensible. You should have transparent involvement with the, the, the tobacco industry. Everything should be above, above board. Shouldn't talk to them just for fun. Shouldn't be involved in marketing or promotion. Um, governments shouldn't be hosting them, you know, in embassies around the world to, to you know, blog flags to, uh, you know, uh, kids in poor countries or whatever. Um, all good. But the first principle of this uh, guidance is quite eye-popping, is quite extraordinary. And it says um, there is a fundamental and irreconcilable conflict between the interests of the tobacco industry and the interests of public health policy. Now, that bears very little relation to the um, principle, the, sorry, the Article 5.3 that it's supposed to be implementing. Article 5.3 is really about process. It's about who you listen to uh, and how you engage with a particular type of stakeholder. Um, but that is a finding of fact. What that says is whatever the tobacco industry says is bad for public health. Um, whatever they do is bad for public health. Whoever works with them, that's bad for public health fundamental and irreconcilable conflict. Not just now, not just when it was signed. If it's fundamental and irreconcilable, kind of means it's permanent. And therefore, it's something that's a profound idea that sort of transcends any idea that there might be innovation, there might be things that change in the future, uh, that mean that there is uh, an alignment of interests between uh, you know, tobacco companies and public health. And what if there was? And actually, we're now living through an, an era where I believe there is an alignment, uh, at least in some respects, of their interests, which is that they are beginning to market and sell products that are orders of magnitude lower risk than cigarettes, which are, you know, vaping products, heated tobacco products, smokeless tobacco products, and new oral nicotine products like pouches and gum and things. So where does that leave that principle? Where does that leave people like me who think that actually those are very positive developments, even if the tobacco industry and the vaping industry, which is increasingly defined as tobacco industry by many of these advocates, where does that, where does that leave us uh, when you think there genuinely is a synergy between the way these companies are evolving and the public health agenda? And it's not as if there's no proof of concept. We've seen tobacco companies, tobacco products make a huge difference to the overall burden of health uh, arising from tobacco in countries like Sweden, um, where smoking rates are, you know, 7%, 5% daily. Uh, in Norway, where you ba barely see smoking now among young women because they're mainly taking nicotine through snooze. So... Where does that leave us if you have this irreconcilable conflict? It really makes no sense, but it has a lot of perverse consequences if you hold to that principle. And the principle is baked into the cake, into the policy. The principle is baked into the cake from a legalistic point of view, but more from a cultural point of view, in my, in my view. It's more 
that that is that is genuinely what is governing a lot of people in the tobacco control field. Not all of them by any means, but if you were to try and pin down one dominant governing idea, it's that the tobacco industry does bad and we're opposed to everything that it does. And once you take that idea and work through the consequences, you end up with being able to explain a lot of the behavior that there is towards tobacco harm reduction. Now, you just made the point that it's constructed as a permanent truth. And in the article, you make a follow-up point in that it's binding on the future. How is that good policy? Well, it's not good policy. It's, it's, you, you should never have a, a, a principle that is absolute, unless it's some kind of physical concept. I mean, I, I, I started this article by um, using the example from physics that um, Einstein created the whole insights of special relativity by changing a fundamental assumption, which is that he had the idea that the speed of light in uh, a vacuum is constant. Okay, now that is true, broadly speaking. And the absolutely incredible findings of uh, special relativity follow from that. And the fact that that wasn't understood before um, meant that you didn't have Einstein's insights in that way. The problem, so, and you know, that for all practical purposes, that probably is a reasonable, you know, fundamentally permanent idea. Um, but the when you get down to you know tobacco, you know, human behaviors, markets, products, and everything, there aren't any bright line permanent things like laws of physics that you can depend on quite so reliably. There is no second law of thermodynamics. Uh, there is no you know, constant speed of light in a vacuum that you can hang everything off. Conservation of energy and mass. Those things don't really exist in the more social and economic and, you know, human health world. You have made six points with regards to the principles. Let's, you know, take them one by one. And that's the irreconcilable conflict principle distorts science. If you, if you believe um, that nothing good ever comes from a tobacco company or the products made by a tobacco company, you have a massive conflict with respect to examining the science about those, those products or the findings about them. And I use the example of snooze. There are still people that deny that snooze is responsible for huge public health benefits in Sweden. And that's because they cannot bring themselves to accept that those benefits are there because of a tobacco uh, a tobacco product marketed by tobacco companies. Just can't do it. But when you take that idea forward and look at the science that we have of, say, vaping or heated tobacco products, you see similar things. So you see that um, FDA, for example, declared that um, um, uh, heated tobacco products like ICOS were appropriate for the protection of public health. And they authorized a claim that said that um, these products have very much more, you know, very much lower, um, uh, cause very much lower exposures to toxicants than cigarettes. You know, it's a reduced exposure claim. Tobacco control people went crazy. You can't say that. It's not, not a health claim. It doesn't prove that there's any, you know, health benefit. Even though... In the, in the detailed documentation, FDA says you're only allowed to make these reduced exposure claims if we're pretty confident it's going to lead to reduced morbidity and mortality, okay? And it's just that it takes many years for health effects to develop from reduced or not to develop from reduced exposures. 
So, you know, you can't, you don't want to wait five decades for all the numbers to be in, um, be, you know, before you can start talking about the health impacts. So they allow reduced exposure claims, but, but there's been denial about that from the, you know, tobacco uh, control lobby. Other things, you know, you see um, tri um, clinical trials coming in showing that vaping is twice as effective uh, as NRT for quitting smoking. Now, I'm the first to say that the RCTs, the randomized control trials in which these measurements are based, only tell part of the story. But suddenly people in tobacco control have gone from, well, RCTs are the gold standard and we don't have any of them, therefore nothing can be said about quitting to, well, it's all more complicated than that. You know, um, uh, what about nicotine? People are continuing to use nicotine, so they haven't fully stopped, blah, blah, blah. You see this shifting of goalposts around what the science is, is telling us and needs to tell us, because they have to maintain the fiction that these products are harmful to public health because they come from industries that they dislike. And that distorts science. A completely distorts science, yeah. So it's almost, in a way, the, the larger kind of meta-analysis here is that activism and science should not mix. They should not mix, but they really do. Um, you, and you see this in, uh, the, I mean, people who take, I mean, almost, I don't know how much of it, but just huge volumes of the world's science on um, tobacco harm reduction comes from American uh, institutions who are paid, uh, funded by the National Institutes of Health and various institutes that, you know, uh, comprise that, and money from FDA. Now, they, whether they like it or not, they are part of this, um, I, I think, um, governing, or many of them are anyway, not all of them, to be fair, um, governing principle in, in which they are trying to find problems. They are trying to find reasons to regulate. They are trying to show that these products are problematic. You hardly ever see research done on the opportunities or the benefits or the success. And if, if it does come out, it's usually as a, a kind of regrettable byproduct for which, you know, a long list of caveats and limitations are added to the paper uh, to fend off uh, uh, giving any kind of positive news. Or if, you know, if you if you have a finding that says that there are just lower levels of toxicants in these products, they'll just say lower levels. They won't say far lower levels or or two orders of magnitude lower levels, because that would be to give the game away, that there really are huge benefits here. So it's immensely distorting on science. You'll always see science from the industry criticized, even though much of it is incredibly high quality. It's impeccably done. Uh, they spend a king's ransom doing it. They use independent contractors and specialist labs. But a lot of it, you know, a lot of journals won't publish it because they just assume it's uh, propaganda. Um, and, and many people will just dismiss it or it will be dismissed as invalid because of its provenance, which again, is wrong. I mean, those companies are producing science to satisfy very sceptical regulators. It's almost always very high quality, not without its lapses, but then what science isn't. Now, a lot of people that work inside the vaping industry, whether advocates or vapors or retailers and manufacturers, 
they'd say that, you know, they are being unfairly grouped in with tobacco, that the interests of tobacco, so tobacco industry interests, are not the same interests as the vaping industry. What do you think? Well, I mean, the, the, I mean, the tobacco industry's interests are definitely more complicated, definitely more murky, um, but they, they, are not, they are not as crude as um, the tobacco control lobby gives them. I mean, so people will say, well, you know, the tobacco industry has, uh, you know, interests in, um, you, you know, holding back developments on um, vaping, for example. Sort of some, there's some plausibility to that, but actually the problem that they've got is that the market is very competitive, um, both their, both from the point of view of their competitors having their competitor tobacco companies having tobacco, having vaping products, you know, so Reynolds is trying to take market share from Altria through its vaping product line, its views product line, you know, so the companies are competing like cats in a sack with each other for market share using their vaping products. Um, they're all at risk from um, vaping products from independent companies who have no tobacco industry links. Vaping product, vaping manufacturers who are currently independent overnight could become part of the tobacco industry. They could be bought in the same way that Jewel, Jewel was bought. You know, they could go from being these independent freedom fighters to being part of the tobacco industry, or at least having, you know, not bought outright, but having, you know, large equity stakes or bought outright. Um, so, so that position is, is changing all the time. While the market is competitive though, everybody has an incentive to produce the best products and to market them as effectively as possible to adults, which is where all the money is, and to push the industry along at the most rapid pace they can. Where actually that goes wrong, believe it or not, is not the tobacco industry, it's the regulators and the, and the public health people. They're the ones that are showing it's slowing down this migration by sort of disinformation campaigns, the Avali misinformation, pretending that it's a bigger factor in COVID uh, than it is. And, a, you know, a long list of falsehoods to do with popcorn, lung, heavy metals, diacetyl, um, you know, brain rot for young people, blah, blah, blah. It goes on and on and on. That's what's slowing down. That's what's protecting the incumbent cigarette trade. Not the tobacco industry, ironically. Uh, they're keen to move on to kind of different, a different product platform. They're quite keen to get away from um, combusted products through a through a transformation of the consumer base from you know smoking to smoke-free products. The other thing is regulators. Uh, if you put if you pile on the burdens, I mean the vaping companies in the United States are the most incredible burdens to face through the PMTA process. Those are regulatory protections to the incumbent cigarette trade. In Europe, advertising bans are protections to the in independent cigarette trade. So it's the if you want to if you want to finger anybody for blame for holding back the migration and protecting the cigarette business, it's the tobacco control advocates and the regulators that have implemented policies that have perverse consequences, not the tobacco industry. Clive, you made the point already that uh, the ICP, the irreconcilable conflict principle, uh, leads to an amplification of a lot of you know bad misinformation that's out there. It's a 
creates an echo chamber um, as well. You made the point that it distorts science um, and that it stifles innovation. So let me bring these points together into one major point, which is that it shifts the goalposts. And we've seen that with regard to nicotine. Now, all of a sudden, nicotine is the deadly evil here. And that's relatively new in the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what's happened. If, if you're... <laughs> If you have unconditional opposition to to an industry and its products, and they they produce a new range of products that gets over you know not almost all of the objections you had to their previous range of products, then you need some new objections. Uh, I mean that that's that's the that's where this kind of madness takes you really. Um, and yeah, I I I think that's the problem. They've moved from well, it causes cancer, heart disease, and uh, you know respiratory illnesses, which is where we where we came in, and what I basically care about. To yeah, well, it's causing nicotine, it's hooking kids, it's uh, you know it's addiction. Um, it, it, it's uh, you know it's now the problem is a drug problem, and we've migrated from a, a public health enterprise into something that looks much more like the war on drugs. Um, where where essentially a drug, a recreational drug is held up as being like the bad thing. And then we go after that. Uh, and that takes you to a very dark place. I mean, there's nothing good about the war on drugs, that's for sure. Yeah. And I mean, aren't those lessons already well learned uh, and they're just ignoring them? Well, yeah, exactly. The, less, the lessons are out there. They're certainly not well learned. Um, I mean, the... Um, you know the 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 ideas of prohibition uh, of you know really dramatic state interventions to stop things. I mean these are these are live now. We see you know in a, a country of over a hundred million smokers, vaping is banned in India, um, banned in maybe thirty five other countries. That's war of drugs mindset that is that is driving that. So no public health rationale for any of that. That is. You know, here's an evil industry, which, you know, we'll, we'll now liken to, you know, a cartel and we'll we'll deal with it in the traditional war of drugs manner, which is we'll, in our imaginations, make it go away with prohibitive law. Uh, of course, it doesn't go away at all. Everything, everything about prohibitions just make things worse. The products are supplied by black markets, they to poor standards. Through criminal networks, there are all kinds of knock-on ill effects from having criminal supply chains and so on. But nobody seems to want to learn the lessons from that, which is ridiculous. Let's uh, jump to a slide that I've got that we had used when Dr. Derek Yock was on the show uh, just recently. And he is the CEO and founder of the Foundation for a Smoke-Free World. Which we were, I've got a question about that in a second uh, because he was, you know, intricately involved with the WHO and, and Article 5.3. And we had a slide um, for that episode, which was nearly 50 percent of the global combustible cigarette market is controlled by governments that claim commitment <laughs> to the World Health Organization Framework Convention of Tobacco Control, which aims to reduce smoking. So if governments are really the biggest players, they are the governments are big tobacco. So if that's the case, what is the WHO doing with articles like 5.3 that allow seemingly, you know, their member countries to continue along selling poison to people while they're crushing uh, independent vaping 
uh, as an alternative to smoking. I mean, you highlight one of the, the many contradictions uh, about this. I mean, I think the, what people had in mind was the tobacco multinationals sort of swinging into a country and, uh, you know, sort of buying up a few politicians and, uh, um, you know, very ag aggressively using um, uh, public affairs type activity to, to, to influence politicians. Um, but you're right. I mean, the 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 you know, tobacco is a very strongly government orientated approach. And you know, you mentioned the tobacco, the 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 um, government owned tobacco companies. But remember, uh, WHO's policy is that um, at least seventy percent of the price of cigarettes ought to be going in the form of tax revenue. So you know, governments are governments are very highly conflicted by the tax revenue that they get from this. Now, I think many of them, uh, you know, and I think this is true in Britain, um, much of Europe, uh, United States, are not, I, I, you know, people will laugh at me when I say this, are not so cynical that they put, put uh, health ahead of those revenues. They're quite prepared to see those revenues shrink. And I, I, can, I can imagine people sort of chortling as I say this. But my experience is that they are, they are genuinely committed to doing something about the public health uh, aspects, certainly in Britain anyway, and would not stop doing that because of the revenues. Even so, it does mean that there's a huge link between all governments and the and and the, uh, the the tobacco industry. So Derek, I think in that slide has a point and a point that could go a lot further than he does in his slide. So Clive, with regard then to Foundation for a Smoke-Free World, it's an interesting position because Derek, when he was at the WHO, you know, participated in the development of Article 5.3. Then some years later, he kind of saw the light in some respect, respects and then ended up working with Philip Morris uh, on developing this foundation, which his goal is to stamp out smoking um, across the world. And, you know, they're really going at it. But yet now um, their organization is being ostracized from WHO and as well suffering from some of these same things you're talking about. So, I mean, there's a bit of schadenfreude going on there when it comes for me, but it's still well, nevertheless. I, I mean, I think that I think the Foundation for Smoke-Free World is quite an interesting case study as far as this um, irreconcilable conflict principle uh, is is concerned. I mean, I have been astonished by the ferocity of the opposition uh, to it, uh, which I witnessed firsthand myself at the World Conference on Tobacco Health in uh, 2018. Quite incredible. I mean, it was like a, a cult fervor going after this foundation, and that's continued to this very day. But when you, when you look at it objectively, um, Philip, Philip Morris have ponied up a billion dollars, 80, 80 million a year for 12 years. They've handed them over to Derek, who's an established leader in public health, and basically said, come come up with what we need to do to get out of smoking. The whole orientation of the foundation is designed to put money into the idea of ridding the world of smoking. Now, you know, to me, that seems like quite a good idea. Uh, and 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 in this field that is sort of starved of money, um, that you could go a long way with that. You could do good work. You could set up new trials. You could understand the behaviours. You could find out why it is that people won't switch. What it would help to make them switch. How they could go from you know um, 
smoking to alternative nicotine to quitting completely if they wanted to. You could do more research on what policies work, what don't work, what have perverse consequences. I mean, you could come up with a rich platform of insight that would help you understand how to get from uh, a world of a billion smokers to a world of you know maybe less than 100 million or even fewer. Um, and yet the opposition to this is near total. They have done all they can to make it as toxic as possible so that no one will you know, work with them or take their money and everything. And to be honest, I, I think they would rather see just you know, a billion dollars in a field on fire, you know, like the KLF did with a million pounds. You know, it's like, it's almost as if they would rather the Philip Morris shareholders have that money than it was put to a purpose that would challenge their iron rule of the irreconcilable conflict principle. So they've chosen to try to render that foundation ineffective. And to me, that is the most criminal waste of a billion dollars if they prove to be successful. In the long run, I don't think they will. I think Derek will deliver really good things with that foundation. It seems to me that if this situation could be adequately explained to the public, public, they'd be outraged. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of explaining goes on to the public um, all the time. Uh, You know, there's a constant news flow. The idea that the you know there's a uh, you know a struggle between good and evil and the tobacco thing, easiest story for journalists to write, easiest and laziest story for journalists to write. Um, I mean, it is good copy. No editors ever going to hold you up and say, "Hang on a minute, what's all this about the tobacco industry doing a good job?" If you're coming in with yes, unique evil discovered doing uniquely new evil things. That's a, that's just going to go straight through the subs desk and onto the front page. So I, I I don't have much hope, but I agree with you. The if there were proper investigative journalism about the huge propaganda complex that sits behind this, you know, the Bloomberg funded entities that are just talking this up all the time, not thinking about what they're doing, but just on a a kind of robotic program to demonize the industry and anything it does, any products it makes and everything associated with it, then I think they would be quite horrified. I think they would say, yeah, we were game for the war on tobacco when it was all about cancer, heart disease and people living in misery with emphysema. But are we really against people finding a much safer way of taking nicotine than smoking, sparing themselves a lot of misery and cost and actually making their lives better. No, I don't think we really are up for that. So I I think they're treading on very thin ice with the public support and the reputational capital they have. The more that they push this principle beyond its actual utility and beyond what it actually meant back in the 80s or 70s. The position is quite totalizing, isn't it? It is. It is a total war mentality. Um, and that's kind of how the war was fought in the, um, you know, in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s. The, the, there was this thing called the scream test, which was invented by, you know, particularly ex- you know, extreme campaigners in Australia, who basically said, if you do something and the tobacco industry screams, you're doing the right thing. 
And the scream test is another manifestation of the sort of irreconcilable conflict principle. It's just better expressed in the guidelines to um, Article 5.3, in, in, in my opinion. But it's the same mindset. It's the same mentality. Um, you know, and there's a sort of reverse scream test is that if you do something or support something um, that, um, you know, looks like it benefits the uh, tobacco industry, then all the tobacco control people scream and call foul and say, oh, this is a terrible thing, you know, a priori, because the tobacco industry, you know, like it. So back in the 1920s, when the U.S. instituted prohibition of alcohol, one of the biggest things that happened there was the hypocrisy <laughs> of the whole thing that really affected the entire uh, population of the U.S. It basically turned every American in some form or another into a criminal or to, you know, to turn and look away. And I just wonder, in, in some respects, is that, you know, this kind of position coming out of WHO and like minded public health organizations and governments around the world are in a sense, you know, corrupting people's understanding of right and wrong. I, I think they are playing with fire, uh, to be honest, in terms of public trust, public confidence. A lot of the information, uh, sorry, a lot of the organizations who are doing this have fine reputations that they've built up over you know, many years. But one thing they need to understand is that a reputation can take decades to build. It can take days or weeks to lose. And the danger is that they overextend themselves into bizarre fake news. And that in the end, they'll be found out. We, we've seen people now saying things, you know, and these are respectable organizations, theory anyway, um, saying things like, you know, there's no difference in risk between vaping and smoking. That's becoming a commonplace among these, uh, you know, uh, these, these groups. Or that there's no evidence for a any uh, reduced risk of vaping compared to smoking or var various forms of what is blatant misinformation and propaganda. Or you see the groups that have pushed the Ivali myth around as if it applies to nicotine vaping. They sort of, they've done their damage. They move on now. They've never acknowledged they were wrong, never apologized, never put the record straight, but they've landed their propaganda blow and now they're off. And, how, and we know that many of the public now are completely confused about this. They think that vaping products cause some undescribable lung problem, which they often conflate with popcorn lung, which is an, another sort of bullshit falsehood story. Um, and in their minds that these things are very nasty and novel and dangerous to the lungs um, in a way that cigarettes aren't. And you even see people claiming and I hate to see these things, that vaping is even more dangerous than smoking because of these, these effects. And yet the people pro promoting that myth know, or if they are professional, which they purport to be, they should know better. That is not what is going on uh, here. And they're doing this because they simply cannot bear the idea that these products have a role in public health because any product has to be made by an industry, the tobacco industry or the vaping industry. And they just don't like those industries. End of story. And therefore, they can't have good news about those products emerging and circulating. So it seems to me this is very evangelical. Oh, I, I think that's exactly right. Well, I 
I would go further than that. I mean, you know, I don't want to be rude about evangelicals, but I would go into I would go into the more of a cultist thing. If you if you have uh, uh, you know as uh, a kind of single guiding principle that you push forward as dogma and it determines everything you do, everything you think, your approach to everything, your approach to other people, your approach to products, your approach to public health concepts like harm reduction, then you're basically part of a cult, especially if you think these, uh, your, your underlying idea is fundamental and irreconcilable. Um, you know, it, it, you think it's permanent and a deeply etched article of faith then you're a cultist, basically, and you're nothing to do with public health. So last question. By the way, that's very disturbing to hear. But so how does this get resolved? So if we're talking about, you know, principles baked into the cake at WHO, uh, guidelines and so forth, isn't it just as simple as getting some new people in the WHO and rewriting, you know, Article 5.3? It should just be that easy. Um, it's very deep-rooted, this idea. Uh, I mean, I would say there is a, a, a kind of propaganda complex around it that includes funders, um, supposedly civil society organization that are funded by funders. There is a, a research mindset driven by problem finding, um, you know, that is driven by funding in the NIH um, and FDA coming, coming from them. Uh, there are people in the top reaches of tobacco control who've grown up their entire career fighting wars with the tobacco industry and not about to stop now. Um, the new waves are there. There is, there is a ton of money available from philanthropists, from grant providers for continuing to fight this permanent war. It's the easiest story to tell in the media. Um, it's something that the public recognize and latch onto. It's easy to be an advocate if you have an unequivocal, unambiguously evil enemy. It really helps. Um, so none of these things will change just with a change of personnel. However, um, I do think there are a few leaders in the tobacco control uh, and public health world who could make a difference um, uh, if they changed their mind or became more open to it. So, uh, you know, people like Matt Myers uh, at uh, Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, Michael Bloomberg at Bloomberg Philanthropies, um, the people who lead in the Secretariat uh, at the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control and the Tobacco-Free Initiative at WHO. Um, some of the um, you know, I think some of the other, some of the commentators in the media could become much more skeptical and could start to look behind stories that they're reporting a little more firmly than they do. And I'm thinking about public publications like the New York Times and the, you know, the editorial board of the New York Times and Washington Post and the frankly, garbage that they tend to publish about these issues. Those could all be influential things if they were opened up to, you know, serious reconsideration. Same with the medical journals. They could take a much more skeptical view of the, the kind of junk science that flows from here. Um, but many of them are wrapped up in it. They're, you know, the peer review process is compromised by like-minded people. So it's not difficult. It's not easy by any means to, uh, you know, dismantle a... Uh, you know, a propaganda complex. It is very strong, very well funded. 
and it's very, very strongly functional dependent, functionally dependent on each individually individual component. And it's not going to give up anytime soon. And let me just ask you this one last one. Would Matt Myers or Bloomberg, uh, WHO, will they invite Claude Bates to sit down for a meeting to discuss these issues? Uh, I wish, I wish. I, I once had a, a, this is a kind of, it's sort of childish fancy in a way. I said, okay, you know, Mr. Bloomberg's got, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars um, on it. He's a private sector guy. Uh, he likes competition. Maybe he should have uh, competitive pitches, uh, a beauty contest, if you would like. And I, I would like to pitch against, um, you know, Matthew Myers for $200 million to put the world right on smoking. Let's see who has the best ideas uh, for doing that, me or him. I'm pretty sure I'd win. I'm pretty sure it'll never happen. Well, there you go. Well, Clive, just stay right there. And thanks again for joining us today on RegWatch. And that is Pleasure. it for this edition of RegWatch. Please head off. Before you head off, please go over to support.regulatorwatch.com. That's support.regulatorwatch.com. And consider making a financial contribution to our vaping coverage. It's easy. Just dig into your wallet and find a few dollars and toss them our way. You'll be happy you did, and so will we. And while online, don't forget to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. For RegulatorWatch.com, I'm Brent Stafford.